So you know I have a problem with pronouncing names. <laughs> I mean, this is a, this is a, listeners know this about me. Yeah. That I'm not particularly good with names. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you started by mentioning the particular problem you were talking about. So <laughs> I want to, I therefore want to really celebrate yeah. uh, an email that we received that oh. came in about 15 minutes before we started recording with our fantastic guest for today. Okay. Which Let's, I did not tell you about before we started, not, though I knew. This is usually you forward me the feedback. You're, so Joe maintains let, – let's just say what the roles are here, Joe. Oh, okay, cool. Okay, so, so, so I do the show notes. I do the recording and engineering. Joe, you book our guests. Yes. We talk together about you know people who might be good to invite. Yeah, we do lots we try of planning to, to we talk. Do, of, we try. But who, right. We try. But I actually do the ministerial you, task of trying to book them. Right, and, and you maintain the oral argument podcast at gmail.com email. Which is to say, I receive them. You receive them. You typically forward them to me. I do. Uh, I maintain the Twitter and Facebook feeds. True. Um, about true. which I need to say something. Oh. About our uh, – uh, so, so listeners will be aware. This is, this is to put what your uh, feedback on hold for a second, Joe. Awesome. This is I just to it. build tension. Yeah. This is just to build tension. It's which, drama. It's this a, whole it's show about is about drama. building tension and then, and then releasing tension, really. Right. So it's in that way, it's kind of like um, getting beaten up and then getting a massage. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but uh, don't touch me. <laughs> don't worry. I think I, I, don't touch know, me in either of those. You know, ways, I've never please. had a massage. Nor have I. I think it's kind of weird. I don't I haven't really been beaten up in the way that you're describing. Really? So. That's, I find that surprising. Uh, anyway. <laughs> Listeners to the show will be aware that we did not we did not, we did not publish a show uh, on Friday. Right? right, so we've gone. This is a two week uh, thing. So we had a week hiatus, I guess, um, what a for, logis- week. for logistic reasons. But if you follow us on Twitter, we're at Oral Argument on Twitter, or you uh, um, have liked us on Facebook, you would see the link to the special. We released a special, the we alt released- the alt cast. The yeah. alternative podcast episode. We thought this is back in like December, November. We, you and I thought, well, let's finally do this podcast we've been talking about doing forever, which is called Hold Up. Right. And the whole concept behind Hold Up is uh, you and I and uh, and uh, and my wife Meredith and perhaps a rotating um, uh, a rotating cast of scoundrels will think of a movie we saw a long time ago. Yep. Right. We'll discuss what we remember without looking anything up. Right. We'll talk about our memories of that thing. And then we'll go watch the movie and come back and report back on what we thought of it and ask the ultimate question, does it hold up? Right. You know, things. So for our first episode, we did weird science. Uh, And it was really, it was really fun. I mean, it was fun to do. I have to say, we listened to this on the way up to pick up our kids from camp and Meredith and I laughed uproariously. Yeah. I think it's going to be funnier for us than it will be for other listeners to be, to be completely candid. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, I, so maybe we should just record this and, and not release it and just you and I will listen to, <laughs> will listen to it because I had a great time listening to it. But anyway, so you would only have found out about this special if you were uh, following us on one of those social That's true, media outlets. Because, because we did not, th- this, uh, this lone episode uh, from deep in the salt mines at Oral Argument Headquarters. Yeah, we recorded back in January. Was not uh, put into the stream of regular oral argument no. episodes because it's not a regular oral it's not argument it, i wouldn't it do doesn't that. belong in yeah, that I, I wouldn't like push out to your podcast app no. for this legal podcast or a random movie podcast i wouldn't right. i wouldn't do that there are all kinds of re- so it, you can listen to it on uh on our website um in my blog right but there's a link to it um, right. so if you just go to you know if you just go to um our website uh hydrotex.com so and they you, can't find it on the website unless they go to the blog post. So, but they could find it on the Twitter Twitter stream. Yeah, you can find it everywhere. Easier, right? Or yeah. the Facebook page, easier, right? You can find it from your podcast app. If you click on one of the links there at the top, it'll take you to the web page. And from there, you can okay. click on blog. So it's there. People can get to it if they want to get to it. Yeah. I thought it was fun, though. So we did. That was a consolation for having, miss, for having missed a week. Right. And now we're back. So it wasn't a true I hate us. It was because we had that substitute. That's right. Yeah. That's right. But, but now I, we're I don't back. use the word hiatus. I use the word I hate us. I, I, I understand that. I understand that. Uh, and so now we're back and you've gotten some, some feedback. Now, how do we get down this road? 
Somehow there was a because fork I, in the conversation. I said I hadn't, I hadn't told you. Now, normally when I get a feedback email, oh, right. yeah. I, forwarded that, I forwarded that email to you so that you can see it as well. We were so discussing, I'm not the yeah. only one who's And so this email came in. And we were discussing the division of responsibilities mm-hmm. and, and, and the fact that I maintain the social yes. media things brought up the fact that we'd done this. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I do the email. Okay. And this email came in. I, I, I saw it literally moments before we hit the Skype dial button to talk to our wonderful guest today. Who is Brandon Garrett at University of Virginia uh, Law School. Uh, Terrific. Yes. And uh, in this email, listener Rupesh, who, whose feedback we had talked about on a prior occasion, mm-hmm. um, Rupesh wrote to say, gentlemen. Oh boy. oh, boy. I was impressed Oh, that you pronounced my name correctly. Mm. And that's the entirety of the message. <laughs> and so I, <laughs> I celebrate this. I've, I hold this up as a badge of honor because the likelihood that I would pronounce someone's name correctly is fairly low. What did you pronounce? Have you listened back? Did you pronounce it correctly? Or did I pronounce it correctly? Uh, we both did because we, well, I know I did because I know it was an email feedback. Therefore, I was the one who pointed it out that that was, it was listener Rupesh. And I think this that. should be listener homework. Did Joe actually pronounce it correctly and all in the episode? And did he do so first? And I feel great about having people do that because the answer is <laughs> uh, to all those questions is yes. Okay, we'll find out. Yeah. And, and they can verify that. <laughs> um, but I, but thank you, sir, uh, for uh, celebrating us. And you're being impressed that we pronounced your name correctly, which I'm not going to try to say again because I might screw it up. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, I now you're making me think I shouldn't have said Brandon Garrett. I should have let you try to pronounce Brandon Garrett because there's no telling. <laughs> how, despite uh, how obvious it is, you probably would have said Garrett or something. No, Brandon Garrett. There's another law professor. Is it is it Beth Garrett or Elizabeth Garrett or isn't she at USC? Her last name, I think, is pronounced the same way. Her surname is pronounced is uh, spelled the same way. I knew somehow we couldn't talk about this without your mentioning the S word. <laughs> surname. <laughs> it's a perfectly serviceable, equally syllabic word, last name, mm-hmm. which is unambiguous and is not at all French. Uh, last name, which, mm-hmm. which tells you, hey, it's the last one. And you, you insist on surname. Maybe bien sûr. Hmm. Oh boy. Uh, is it, so we, to be clear, we have lots of other feedback. Yes, we, we do. We've got a lot of great emails. We have read them all. Yes. Uh, we, we typically, if you send us an There's email, been a torrent, we will, you we, might say, yes, of emails. our, pra- our practice so far has been to try to get back to every email unless we somehow forget it on the air. Yeah. Uh, we don't typically respond to the, we, in fact, I don't think we've ever responded via email to an email. Uh, I, I have from time to time. It's very unusual. If it is called for in some way. But usually yeah. we address everything on the show, right? right? Hopefully we'll be able to continue to do that. Yeah. Um, we've gotten a lot more listeners and we've been getting a lot more feedback. So which is one of we're which, hold, both are, uh, which yeah. are great things. So keep the feedback coming. It's the fuel on which we run and we will um, address that on a future show. We're going to bank it for a couple shows and then we're going we're right. to we're address feedback hopefully all at once. Right. And you can even send us feedback on that. And it does group in themes. Like the feedback yeah. does does sort of um, tend to pool. So we'll get several emails that are about a general thing that we talked right. about. And so it's a great way to talk more deeply about the thing we talked about before by reflecting on the feedback we've received in it. So it, it when you when you when when we bank them and yeah. then talk about them as a group, it really I think makes it even better. Okay, I'll go along with that. Cool. Is there anything else we should talk about before we talk to? Our guest, Brandon Garrett. I don't think so. Um, well, one thing, as we speak, uh, actually, it's it's about four o'clock in the afternoon right now. Uh, we're recording this early in the week, and that's one of the reasons for the two week, uh, the one week gap, or the two week two week gap, depending on how you count it. Um, so we didn't record it on Friday; we're recording on Tuesday, which is why it's delayed. So we're, we're still going to release this on Friday. Yes. So the point is, but that we're today, recording it on Box Birthday today. Not only are law students, but law students across the land, recently graduated, day are one. taking the bar exam. Day one of the bar day exam. Day one of the bar exam. Tomorrow will be day two. Right. So I would like to say good luck, but this episode won't be out until after it's all done. So at that point, you know, why worry about it? It's over. <laughs> it's over. I hope it went well. I guess yes. that's the best that I can say. I hope it went well, um, especially for our students, but really for all students. Agreed. Yeah. They, they should all be able to pass, don't you think? Yeah, we had an episode about the bar exam. Yeah, we we're both they highly skeptical all that there be should be able to pass. I I don't think we should. There shouldn't be a bar exam. 
Yeah, it's a, the Wisconsin system is an interesting one where where graduating from that law graduating from a law school in the state of Wisconsin entitles you to yeah. join the bar. It's an we, interesting approach. We covered it's it. It's the only state that does it that way. But we, it's yeah, we covered approach. it in an early episode, and, and I think we right. said everything that needs to be said. Don't yeah. you? Yeah, done. And so now let's say everything that needs to be said about um, convicting the innocent. Mm. I don't think we're going to get it through everything, though. No. But uh, fascinating conversation. Here's Brandon Garrett. You've come out with two books. I think since we've talked, I, I think yeah, convicting, yeah. so maybe this helps date when we last saw each other, but uh, convicting the innocent is, uh, was it 2011? 2011, yeah. And then this, just last year, I came out with the corporate prosecutions book. And this, to jail. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and this issue just gets, you know, more and more legs, it seems, as time goes by. Um, this is the... Uh, convicting the innocent type issue, but too big to jail also is a big issue. So I'm actually, yeah, I'm in the middle of updating all the convicting the innocent data because there've been a lot of exonerations since I wrote the book. And so literally just when you called, I was, I was typing up a section, updating all the forensic um, data from the book. I guess it's fair to say that you, one should never bet against our understanding of the criminal justice system getting more deplorable. <laughs> like the more you learn about it, the worse it gets. So when you're writing about how bad it is, you know it'll always, you know, your stuff will remain fresh. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, do you have a pessimistic take on things, Brandon? I don't know. Uh, the upside is that uh, the politics surrounding criminal justice have changed a lot, and some good things have actually been done to try to deal with some of the causes of wrongful convictions. So, there, you know, there are a lot of good things happening. Actually, like, these are, these are great days to be criminal justice scholar because you know major policymakers on both sides of the aisle actually care about this stuff and states are worried about costs crime rate can crime rates continue to fall mm. it's just it's, it's a totally different time it's really nice and and it's that you know people are open to your ideas which is always great for an ap- for an academic right yeah 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 i guess what i was referring to is the fact that you know when, when you think about i mean i i, I don't uh, teach in criminal law. I don't write in criminal law. I clerked at one of the few courts in the in the federal system that you could be guaranteed would there would be no criminal cases at all. Um, and uh, and so I, I this is very much outside my uh, my field or my wheelhouse or what have you. But um, you know, with with the episode we did about uh, in fact more than one about the serial podcast and and some other things, it just seems like the the horror of of people who are in prison who we learn later didn't commit the offense and they were there for years. Um, some of them waiting to be executed. It's just, it, it's just so horrifying. Yeah. The cost of it. Right. The, and then you find out, you, you know, the more we learn, that's like the more certain we can be that greater numbers of people were, were wrongly are, are, uh, have been and are, um, wrongly imprisoned. Oh yeah. You know, the serial case is kind of a regular case. Uh, there's, I, I find I, I couldn't get really get into the show just because it's so much exactly like every murder case that you read about. Yeah. In your, in your, in your recent, uh, essay, um, about, uh, I, maybe this is a couple of years ago, the, the one reviewing the, um, three books, um, oh, yeah, on yeah. this, right. I mean, I think one of those, I, I forget the name of it cause I, my notes, the banality come up of some, something. Yeah, yeah. 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 But I, there was, a, there was uh one, one particular case that you said was, just like you just told Joe, a normal case, right? Um, where the where the person was convicted based on a single eyewitness identification. That eyewitness identification was the result of a truly egregious show up identification. This is where instead of like the the eyewitness attending a, a lineup at the police station, uh, they they just bring the suspect to the eyewitness, and and here they really led them uh, led led the witness on about like where they found the guy, why they thought it was the right guy, all of that before asking if this was the guy. <laughs> and, and and the death the death penalty conviction hinged entirely on that eyewitness identification. Isn't that right, Brandon? Yeah, there's there's so many death penalty cases that hinge entirely on eyewitnesses or on a piece of forensics or more common on a on a confession or a confession statement. You know, it's it's more typical in a death penalty case that the person who saw the murder was the victim and there's no one who can mm. identify the culprit and uh and so the murder cases are particularly confession heavy yeah with the witness stuff i mean in a way you can you can sort of um at least there's the hope that uh 
vigorous cross-examination would expose uh, some of the the frailties of eyewitness, this eyewitness in particular, maybe even uh, eyewitness uh, identification in general. It's it's the contaminated confession stuff that is so chilling because there the, the, the party has been induced to put the words in their own mouth that seem like they're extremely damning because it's information they couldn't otherwise know. Uh, and that just seems so awful. So I'm not sure that actually you can use effective cross-examination to bring to light a problem with an eyewitness's memory. Once someone has had a picture suggested to them or a bad lineup procedure is used, even unintentional suggestion can contaminate an eyewitness's memory. And once you have the wrong picture in your mind, once your memory has been altered, um, you know, you can ask the person a hundred different ways, you know, um, you know, why didn't you describe a face like that before you saw the lineup? It doesn't matter. The person will have become sure that the wrong person is the one. And so it's it's not easy to unring the bell. You can try to bring in experts to explain how eyewitness memory works to the jury. But actually, you know, contaminated evidence is contaminated evidence. It's the same problem with eyewitnesses as with confessions. It's just that there may be more people these days who realize how fragile an eyewitness's memory is. And we all have personal experience with, you know, starting to say hi to someone and then we realize, oh, wait a minute, that's a total stranger. Like we all, we all know that it were, it's not easy to remember right. a stranger's face. Confessions, it's much harder to get around the idea that someone could confess in detail to facts that only the murderer could know if, if they didn't actually do it. No, that's a fair point. And, and I guess it's, it may simply be, um, you know, ignorance and inexperience on my part, plus conventional wisdom thinking that, that it, it, at least it seems like it's a thing where cross-examination could get its hooks in. Um, and as you say, there uh, was, is it Elizabeth Loftus who did uh, all this eye- eyewitness work so many years ago, things like there's no correlation between confidence and accuracy and that kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, there, there may be some correlation at the time of an initial lineup procedure, for example. And, and that's one reason that police departments are increasingly, because social scientists have recommended it, asking eyewitnesses, so how confident are you in your own words if they make an identification? Because by the time of trial, everyone's confident. Right. You know, when I study these DNA exoneration cases, without exception, almost, or one or two cases, they were all absolutely sure at trial that they had the one. But at the time of the initial lineups, many of them actually said, you know, the guy was wearing a mask. I don't think I even saw a face. I don't think I can make an identification. I, you know, one of these pictures looks kind of familiar, but, but I can't identify anyone. Or they would point to three different pictures and say, I don't know, it could be one of these three. And so most of them actually expressed a lot of certainty at the time that they first looked at a lineup, which is a serious, serious red red flag. Since people's memories of strangers' faces don't actually improve over time. Right? Memory can be contaminated over time, but people don't actually become more accurate over time. And, and, ju- and judges don't understand this. Often a judge will say, well, I don't know, the lineup may have been done badly, but we can, you know, we can test this person's memory out in the courtroom. Let them, let them see if. Uh, See if you can pick the guy out in the courtroom. Obviously, it's easy to see where the defendant is sitting in the courtroom. But even if you did a real lineup months later, it's not it's not a, a nearly as accurate a test because months later, someone someone's memory has has deteriorated. But they also have learned a lot more, like like that the police have a particular guy that they care about prosecuting. It's interesting. I was thinking as I was reading the um, contaminated confession piece about how. Um, you know, I think there's an intuitive understanding, maybe from e- e- people watching CSI and other things, how uh, physical evidence collection can become contaminated. And uh, the, the integrity of the crime scene is is an idea which is woven into our narratives about police investigation. Uh, and, and, and the latest, you know, the latest understanding, both philosophical and scientific of, of the brain, right, is that it is another piece of physical evidence uh, that can similarly become contaminated. Uh, by bad police procedures. So th- I like the word contamination in the piece because it, I, I think it assimilates the problem with the other kinds of physical evidence which are gathered. And, and one thing that occurs to me uh, in your uh, in Joe's question, your response to it, um, you know, why is cross-examination not enough to ferret out um, the fact that there's been this uh, uh, contamination which, which uh, critically impacts the reliability of, of what we infer from testimony uh, is our conversation we had. I don't know if you know Lisa Kern Griffin at Duke. 
Um, yeah, very well. Yeah, so she's she's amazing, and she, we did a show with her a while back about narrative and um, and the way that humans perceive, you know, the, the way we perceive the world is, is you know stories and and the trial is this weird mix of storytelling and 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 fact finding and, and kind of truth seeking and and she in, in, in the paper that we discussed when she was on talked about how the rules of evidence are are kind of weirdly not attuned to the way that people perceive information. This is my memory of it. I hope I'm not getting it wrong, but, but they're not, um, you know, these are things like limiting instructions where the judge says, Hey, I'm going to introduce this evidence now, but please don't take it uh, for this purpose. Instead, use it only for that purpose. Right. And, and that kind of thing just misperceives in her view, I think, uh, how, um, how, how people pre- build stories of what happened in their mind. And so this kind of came out when I was looking at, uh, when I was reading this work and you point out, I forget if it's in this one or the other one, uh, that one of the problems in one of these cases, I think it was the case that I asked you about earlier where there was only the one eyewitness, uh, uh, and the eyewitness was the result of this really bad show up procedure. You said the other problem in that case was there was no other alternative narrative, right? There was no, you know, there wasn't a competing story in the, in the, in the jurors' minds about what happened in that case. This was a convenience store robbery and they found, they found this defendant under a car without a shirt on. And only one guy was willing to say that's the guy. And it was only after this show up procedure with blah, blah, blah. Right. So there's no competing narrative, but had it been physical evidence and they had done a bad job gathering physical evidence I think if that had been, that does tend in the mind to produce a, a, a counter narrative, at least sometimes. I know that you talk about all kinds of bad physical evidence procedures too. But so anyway, it's a lot to think about. But uh, I, I wondered if you thought consciously about that word "contaminated" uh, as a connection between the two, and whether you've thought about like uh, Lisa's stuff on uh, on the connection between uh, narrative formation and these. Maybe that explains partly the power of these false confession stories because we you know you can't think of a lot of books or literature other kinds of narratives we perceive where someone confesses to something so totally against their interests and yet does it falsely well the narrative is exactly what detectives are trained to get in these cases so there's an elaborate storytelling process that goes on in the interrogation room um what was really interesting looking at it's you know now almost 70 of these cases where uh DNA testing has cleared people who had falsely confessed. Uh, almost without exception in these cases, the exonerees confessed in detail. So now there have been 69 DNA exoneration cases involving false confessions, and only a handful of them did not include details. Now, there were a few people among those 69 exonerees who basically said, after they'd been worn down by the police, some were mentally ill, some were juvenile, some just got exhausted by hours of questioning. They basically said, I guess I did it without being able to say what they did. Like, you tell me, I don't know, I did it. The police know that that's not very convincing. Just, it, it is an admission. That person has confessed. They said, I did it. But they don't know what they did, and they can't offer details that only the, typically a murderer, only the murderer would have known. Now, in some of these cases, police even admitted, look, we, we tried to tell the guy how he did it, but he just wouldn't. He just wouldn't repeat any of it. <laughs> they, they, in frustration, tried to feed the facts and failed. That happened a few times, but for the most part, in the vast bulk of the cases, you know, 65 of the 69 cases, the police successfully leaked details to these people. Now, they may not have done it on purpose. There are well-known cases where police were going back and forth trying to tell more and more aggressive stories, and that's how they're trained. You begin by saying... Um, well, you obviously know, you know, you know something terrible happened in the apartment. Can you, can you tell us what? And if the guy says, well, you tell me, well, who are you there with? And you were there with some friends, right? And there was a party and you saw something terrible happened, right? But you weren't involved. You just saw it happen. And then maybe you try to work through another story where the person is a little bit more of an accessory and, and doing something a little bit more active than just passively watching. And then maybe you say, well, but the, but the guy who was attacking you was self-defense, right? And the police are trained in all sorts of different narratives to use particular storylines to use if it's a child sexual abuse case, particular storylines to use if it's a sexual assault case or a, or a murder or an elderly victim. There are entire treatises and books filled with these narratives. And there have been known cases where uh, police were just sort of doing all this storytelling and lo and behold, they gave away some of the key facts that they aren't supposed to tell the person during one or another of these narratives. And over a course of eight to 10 hours, they lost track of what facts they'd actually leaked. 
Now, police are trained to keep track of the key facts because it's really powerful if the person can say, you know, I stabbed the victim 18 times on her beige couch, the one by the window, and I left the bloody knife in the dresser drawer. Uh, police don't make those facts public. They know if someone can tell them that stuff, those detailed crime scene facts, then they then they have the right person. Anyway, it's incredibly powerful to say that that facts only known to the investigators were told to us by this by this murderer. Or if the murderer leads them to where the you know the body is or where the weapon had been left, they know that that's unbelievably powerful evidence. But of course, if there's no record of who said what, it's really the detectives say so that they were the ones who were asking the open-ended questions, and the suspect was the one who was volunteering without prompting the key information. And we now know that in this large body of cases, the suspects didn't volunteer the information without prompting. At best, the detectives were asking leading questions when they shouldn't have, and at worst, and and in some cases, in civil rights cases brought afterwards, juries have concluded so, at worst, some of these detectives outright fabricated confession statements, which is which is horrible. It's, it's a, yeah. it's criminal conduct. I mean, if we set, if we set aside the, the worst kind of police abuses and get at the more banal cases, you know, where everyone's kind of operating under a certain set of incentives and no one's, no one's trying to do evil, but through a lack of understanding, occasional incompetence and all these things meet up together and you get one of these bad confessions. Um, you seem to be kind of optimistic, at least that's how I read the uh, the the new confessions piece optimistic that the right trial procedures could really help with that right that um and that's kind of what I wanted to get at trial you, procedure or pretrial procedure well, well both actually it was you, you know you you uh, recommend a lot of best practices and but at at I guess pretrial and then at trial I, I'm not sure so I want to leave that open to Brandon to respond to so um, is this fixable at the adjudication? stage well it gets harder and harder to to unring the bell if, if evidence is contaminated you know a judge could throw it out but judges may be reluctant to throw out the entire case and so it's particularly important that confessions be done right in the station house in the first instance it can create some pressure for police to do it right if they know that the, this undocumented confession statement just based on their say so is going to be viewed skeptically by a judge or if they know that the defense will bring in experts on false confessions if they if they botch the interrogation. So I do think that improvements in how courts handle this evidence can feed back to police. And you, you, you didn't typically see police departments having policies on recording interrogations a decade ago, two decades ago. Or if they did record interrogations, it wasn't policy. It was just something that they thought was a good idea, but they didn't have guidelines on it. Uh, for, for some of these other topics like lineups, you never saw written lineup policies. It wasn't thought of as something important to get right. You know, maybe they, they throw some pictures together and show it to an eyewitness. Um, but there, there weren't standard forms, standard warnings, standard procedures. And so there, there has been a real change in the, just the understanding uh, among police departments that this is actually a really important procedure that you have to do the right way. And if, if the pace of change has been slow, part of it has been because judges haven't paid much attention to it. Once you have judges insisting that the evidence be in the right form, police, police can issue the marching orders pretty quickly. When you point to, is it Massachusetts where there's the jury instruction saying, if there's not a complete recording of the interrogation, you may, but you need not um, consider the entire interrogation unreliable? Right, right. Some guidance from the, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Council. Yeah, and so in the jury, if the jury gets that instruction, you know, again, I have questions pointing back to Lisa's stuff about whether that kind of instruction can erase the strong narrative that, oh, sure. it, you know, but especially but, if it's a contaminated yeah. confession that has all these details, right? Right. Ignore this really incredibly powerful confession that you just heard. Uh, maybe, maybe not likely that a jury could really do that. So, so let's, let's then go back and, and ask, so if a state, let's imagine a state legislature is considering following, uh, p- passing the following statute. Um, and what what you might think of it. So the statute says this new statute would say um, uh, uh, prosecutors and police can't use uh, any confession that ha- or any witness statement that hasn't been recorded from start to finish. Um, and there's a judicial escape hatch if a judge finds after a hearing uh, that there is clear and convincing reason to 
uh, conclude there are other guarantors of the reliability of the statement, even in the absence of the recording, right? Why not have a statute like that? Just say, look, it's just unusable, and anything that comes from it is unusable if it's not recorded. End of story. What's the excuse for not having a recording? There's no good excuse for not having a recording. And a statute like that would, would, would be a good thing, or at least there could be a, even a statute with a strong presumption of unreliability would go a long way. If you don't, if you don't record it, it's presumed, we presume that it can't be admitted. You better show us some amazing reason why there is an emergency and your equipment all malfunctioned. And there's even a concern that, you know, departments that record can get around those policies by just taking an informal statement in a squad car. But there are a lot of ways to evade rules. Uh, and then the sad thing about this is that it, right, it's amazing how hard it is. You have these tragic wrongful convictions, which are just about the worst disasters that can happen in a criminal justice system. And yet these improvements benefit law enforcement, you know, 99 times out of 100. And still it's hard to get it to change. Yeah, I, that, I, that's I, the question I, I have. Like, what are the what are the incentives that are? Well, go ahead and finish that. Like, why why is it hard to? You change? Know, for example, I've been I've been reading recent death penalty trials in Virginia capital cases, and about half of those cases involve confessions, none of which were documented in their entirety. Now, most of those trials did not involve strong, you know, wrong guy innocence defenses. Uh, you know, about a third of them involved innocence defenses. But if those confessions had been documented in their entirety. Right. Fewer cases might have involved innocence issues. Right? These are death penalty cases, the most serious cases that have gone to trial in recent Virginia history. And the defense made hay in each of those cases by saying, look, you, know, you only recorded part of what this guy said. Um, you know, we don't know what the full picture here was. We don't know what police were badgering him about before he made the statements. It gave the defense great ammunition in, in, these, in death penalty cases. You think if you're going to get it right anywhere, get it right in the most serious criminal cases imaginable. Yeah, so I don't understand why they're. Not, this is this, this the incentive structure here is something you'd want to figure out to fix this, right? Because, uh, you know, I guess the the maybe maybe part of the thinking is that um, with more elaborate procedures and protections of people in custody, um, we get a greater we get kind of a concomitant increase in the number of people who are getting off on technicalities. And I'm thinking back to like. In, I remember in the 80s, there was that Michael Douglas movie, The Star Chamber. Do you remember this thing? Yeah. Yeah, yeah except, you know, right, documenting evidence better doesn't create more technicalities. It usually helps the prosecution to say, look, we have a video of this guy saying he did it. Well, that, that's my point. I mean, right, without any leading questions at all from from beginning to end. Right. You've got a video that shows proper questions that are open ended and the person spontaneously produces details or they don't. But or they don't. My point is that that this is not this is not that. And, you know, this is not like I think in that movie. It's not that, you know, we went looking through the garbage and we had to wait until it was mixed with the rest of the garbage before we could actually do the search. And it was a wrongful search. And therefore, we're going to exclude this highly probative evidence. Right. This all goes to reliability. And every time. I mean, every time uh, you you get a false confession and you convict on that basis, not only are you convicting an innocent person, which, you know, maybe right. only bleeding hearts care about, I don't know, still free. Yeah, but you're still letting a guilty person go free. And right. so what is which the is a disaster? Right. Well, yeah, and, you, and you hear about cases where, where people who, where there really is good evidence of guilt do go free because because police just didn't document the evidence very well. Uh, and you also hear cases that are cases. There have been cases here in Charlottesville. You know, our local police videotape interrogations. They always do. And there have been cases that went very, very smoothly for them because they had a, a, a fantastic video of the person not just confessing but showing remorse. And right, really, it's really powerful to have that footage. Uh, and so, you know, my, my experience talking to law enforcement. I've done a lot of work with law enforcement in Virginia, but also in some other states. Uh, is that you, have, you typically have the main policing agencies, the International Association of Chiefs of Police is the national agency in the U.S. In Virginia, you have the Virginia Chiefs of Police. You have these police policymaking bodies that are absolutely on board with all these improvements. They care about accuracy. They believe that you should ad- adopt an approach where you look at errors and try to learn from them. They recommend videotaping. They have model policies describing to departments how to do videotaping, how to do lineups better, how to adopt a whole series of different lineup improvements and reforms. They advocate collecting forensics better and presenting more accurate testimony on forensics. Um, I don't know, there's less, less focus on informants and on safeguarding the accuracy of informant statements. 
But on some of these key issues, they're absolutely on board and have even issued model policies. The problem is you have criminal justice in this country, which is so fragmented. Most local departments just, just don't care. It's never come up. They have no particular interest in updating any of their policies, much less these. And, you know, when I've looked at Virginia policies, I have these students, my student group here, FOIA, at every single policing agency in Virginia, um, because they thought it'd be an interesting research project. And I contacted, contacted them saying, you know, that, that, that's, that material would be a goldmine. I'd really like to study the lineup policies, the interrogation policies. And so they shared that with me. And the, and the departments, for the most part, had really, really dated uh, lineup policies, very little on interrogations at all. But it looked like from just looking at the headers and their manuals that they submitted that none of their policies had been updated in 10, 15 years. It wasn't that they were just sort of against the idea of changing lineups and weren't sure about the research. It's more that they just they don't they don't care about any of their practices. It's just not a priority to be, have like a, a a beautiful and up to date looking manual. Also seems also seems unlikely to me that anything in the manual would actually reflect practice, right? I mean, if they haven't been updated in a long time, that may be a sign that what goes on in that department is not necessarily bound to the manual. Well, and you have and you have most departments have a very small number of officers. You know, the Virginia chiefs of police, has, have, you know, I've talked to them a lot about these best practices and given some talks to their association. And one of the problems is that they don't hear from any of their members. They send out emails saying, you know, it's really important that you update your lineup policies. People like Garrett are watching. You know, you need to have good lineup policies. We have a very good state model policy. Why aren't you using it? And a lot of departments just don't respond. You know, there are not that many agencies in Virginia uh, that are accredited, only, you know, about 20% of the agencies are accredited and have their policies examined by anyone. And, and that's it's the same mixed bag around the country. Often you have, you know, larger urban departments that that are really on top of best practices and listen to what the national agencies are saying and they know about the research. Uh, but you have smaller departments, but they just can't be bothered. They don't have the resources. They don't have the time. And it's just not not a priority. Well, that's, in, that's maybe a little different than I was thinking. So here's, I was thinking that um, this is, this attitude seems totally predictable in a system in which your, your reward for accomplishing something is immediate, but whether you accomplished it correctly is not measured for another 10 or 11 years. And your chance of actually being in the same role to receive the penalty for yeah. not accomplishing well is, is, is small because you're likely to either move on or retire or go somewhere else. Right. Well, that's, and, that's a great point too. So, you know, you look at these manuals that police departments have and they'll have incredibly detailed policies uh, for what you do anytime a police officer's gun goes off, even if no one's hurt, right. There will be reports generated. There are all sorts of rules for, for firearms, for use of force, because if, if a gun goes off, even if no one is actually injured, people in the community know about it right away. And you may be asked right away, why did this officer's gun accidentally go off while they were standing at a busy intersection? Everyone knows it happened. And they could get sued, right? If, if someone gets shot, it's predictable that, that there, will, there will be some kind of a use of force lawsuit. Some, plenty of those lawsuits don't win, but police will get sued over that. Whereas a lineup, where a witness's memory is contaminated and they pick the wrong person who then goes to prison. You know, if that person is really, really lucky, maybe they'll get a DNA test and, you know, 10, 15 years later, they'll get exonerated. No one will remember that case. The likelihood of a lawsuit is pretty remote. And even if it does happen, you know, the detectives may have retired by then. Everyone will have moved on. Yeah, but if you, I mean, if you, if you're a cop on a crime scene and you plant cocaine or you move something in the scene to incriminate someone, uh, I, I think, you know, the, you're, you're subject to um, obstruction of justice charges and other criminal charges and, and certainly a lawsuit. Um, and yet, if you do the equivalent at the psychological level, it, it's usually like, you know, there's some kind of absolute immunity. I mean, it isn't implanting a memory in someone's head the way that they do it uh, and, and without recording it often? Is that really all that different than planting a gun or moving blood splatters or whatever else you might do to a crime scene? Well, that's been the theory. Actually, pl plenty of these exonerees who, who falsely confessed have sued, arguing that the police fabricated their confession statements uh, by claiming that the key t details came from the innocent person who we know now couldn't have known those details. And they've won huge damages verdicts. You know? Yeah, but, but those are cases, right, where they're saying that, in fact, the, the police lied about the fact of the confession, right? Not, not, just, the fact, not, not just the fact of the confession, but um, 
but who said what as to the key details, right? They admit that eventually I said I did it because I was worn down. Okay. Right? But I never volunteered that I knew where the knife was and what the victim's couch looked like. Those details all came from the police, and they falsely represented those details as coming from me, and that's what the whole case revolved around. So, that, you know, so that's absolutely been the theory in, in some serious cases you know, where juries say, you know, what would I pay not to be on death row or to be in prison for something I didn't do? A million dollars a year? A million dollars a year sounds good. Wow. The compl- of course, the complicating factor is that uh, the interrogator can be unaware un- of the fact that the interrogator is suggesting details to the person being questioned. Wait, s- say that again? You-, you posited the instance where someone is uh, intentionally trying to plant an idea in the in the um, in the arrestee or uh, recklessly or head. recklessly doing it yeah okay like a tantamount to putting cocaine at the scene right right uh, my understanding is it could be happening without the interrogator being particularly aware that it's happening simply because they're doing a kind of a boneheaded job right they're not trying very hard not to do it right therefore they could do it yeah have there been those do cases, i have that Brandon? wrong or is yeah that... no no have there, have there been cases uh on a negligence or recklessness theory about interrogations or is it only when the police have misrepresented what has occurred uh, well obviously when the person is exonerated there isn't usually some official finding that oh it was you know it was due to recklessness or negligence you know we do know of some instances where it's, it seems like police were negligent and didn't quite realize what happened uh, th- those have been cases where they sort of caught the mistake before it turned into a wrongful conviction uh, there's a well-known case where a detective Trainum, who does a, jim Trainum, does a lot of training on false confessions now because he says look it, it happened to me but what he did was he went back there was, there was a video so we went back and looked at the video and realized that this person had actually been told six or seven key facts during the course of the interrogation and had put them together at the end. And they hadn't realized that they had actually leaked these facts one at a time. Uh, you know, normally, since an exoneree may sue, you don't have detectives sort of admitting that, oh, yeah, you know, when I did it, it was intentional. Uh, <laughs> and so what you have is you have a lot of big cases that have settled on the basis that what was done was either intentional or reckless. Yeah, I was wondering what the rule of law was. I mean, what, what is the rule here? Well, in, a, in, a, in the 1983 lawsuit, you have to show, to get past qualified immunity, uh, you have to show something not just more more than negligence and, and more than just sort of a reasonable call by a detective. And so you have to, you have to show at least recklessness. Now, some exonerees don't file those civil rights lawsuits because it can take years to bring cases in federal court and more states now have compensation schemes that can automatically entitle you to money if you were if you were exonerated based on evidence of innocence and so plenty you know they maybe if they had their day in court they would prove that the police engaged in misconduct but most people would rather just get some money sooner and not wait 10 years you know literally like when i when i started teaching in 2005 i had just finished working on a response to a motion to dismiss in the central park jogger case and as some of you may know, right, that that case settled like last year, right? It took almost yeah. it took it took ten years for that case to come to a settlement, not even a trial, uh, in, in federal court. So these cases can drag on for a long, long time. And so, even though it might be a good thing for the world to know more about whether there was police misconduct or not, it may not be a good thing for uh, an exoneree to have to wait a decade to get anything. Especially, you know, because they're oftentimes, I mean, almost always going to be in a bad spot when they're released, right? That, that money would be very meaningful to them up front, right? To rebuild their lives, I assume. So can I jump in with something else? Why aren't we imprisoning people for, for wrongly convicting others? I just feel like when you know someone's exonerated, right? And, And it was a mistake and you can trace that mistake to things that were avoidable, like avoidably wrong, demonstrably avoidably wrong. That someone ought to be imprisoned for the number of days that person was wrongly imprisoned. Because well, if, the if, world if, is if, morally out of balance. If it was just negligent? or I don't know what the right formula yeah, is. One I, category is like... Demonstrably, yeah. avoidably wrong. Well, I mean, one category are, are Brady violations and other things where the prosecution you know, knew what it had to do and didn't do it. And it may be while I was reading the Kaczynski piece that I was thinking these things more so than when I was reading Brandon's pieces. Yeah. Okay. I want to get back to that. Because Kaczynski piece goes into more detail about some of the really conscious, consciously evil stuff being done in prosecution. Yeah. And this was born out of, and we want to get your reaction on the Kaczynski piece, Brandon, and whether it's uh, 
breaking new ground or whether it's a, just a summation of a lot of work that you and others have done for a long time. It seems to be born out of a place of frustration with the number of lying, the amount of lying that he's seen on the government side. But right. w- one quick thing before we get there, and then you can address that at, at your at your leisure. But uh, I was, you know, I was looking at the statistics for uh, what produced these false confessions uh, that was at the beginning of your article on false confessions uh, revisited. Um, and I, I was wondering what the denominator was there. I mean, because a lot of these are so, uh, you know, you looked at exonerated death penalty convictions, right? Uh, uh, exonerated um, uh, death row inmates. And, you know, how many in, do you have any sense or scale uh, of the scale here? How many false confessions are there in general outside of the death penalty context? How, how often are these procedures used, these, you know, right. interrogations that last longer than three hours, interrogations that are contaminated right. with crime scene evidence? Well, are there, are there, yeah, go ahead. Well, the cases I looked at involved DNA exonerations. Some of them were death penalty cases. Some of them were not. Uh, 20 of the 69 cases were death penalty cases. Uh, Oh, no, I'm sorry, 10 of the 69 cases involving false confessions were death penalty cases. Okay, okay. Most of them are other types of murder investigations. Uh, some of them, like in the Central Park Jagger case, involved rapes, but where the victim couldn't make an identification, so it was still a high priority to get a confession statement. And so most of the cases I look at uh, are, not, are not death penalty cases. So out of the current crop of 330 DNA exonerations, 20 are, uh, were cases where someone was sentenced to death. Okay. Hey, but are are there do you know if anybody's just picked up a handful of convictions in uh in and for basically any maybe any felony and looked at the interrogation techniques in those cases so that we can get a sense of whether the whether there's something different going on in the exoneration cases? Yeah, I don't think they are. I mean, they, they, these were a, a, somewhat of a range of crimes. So they were representative in the sense that interrogations and long interrogations are more of a priority in murder cases. So I have done some work for example in these recent Virginia capital trials, just looking at the entire set of death penalty trials in Virginia. And about half of them involve confessions. About half of the, well, exactly half of the DNA exonerations involved confessions. But there are a lot of confession statements in murder cases precisely because people need to, unless police have a DNA match or some eyewitnesses, they often won't have those things. A confession becomes the only way to close the case. Now, there is another end of the spectrum, however, which is also troubling. Um, so there's been some research done on the opposite end of the criminal justice system, lower level cases, sometimes quite low level cases involving juveniles. Now, juvenile cases look a little bit more like inquisitorial justice in Europe or in Asia, where you're expected to confess because that's your way of coming clean and showing rehabilitation. And the studies that have been done of juvenile interrogations in our country is that it doesn't take long to question a kid and get them to confess. Police don't have to do long confession, long inter- interrogations with lots of ornate techniques and psychological tactics. You talk to a kid for 20 or 30 minutes in isolation, maybe even more so with their parents outside. Um, and it's accurate to tell them that if you come clean and confess, things will go much better for you in front of the juvenile court judge. Uh, and we, we know so little about those cases. Most of those courts are not courts of record. But the sense is, is that they're dominated by confessions, that it's basically a confession system. In much the same way that, you know, in Japan, you know, 99% of criminal cases are resolved through confessions. In many countries in the world, you're expected to confess. That's part of the deal. That's part of what you do. I, I would imagine, though, in North Korea, 100% of the cases are resolved yes. by confession, right? Yeah. And so, obviously, there are <laughs> countries where, where you can detain people for long periods of time without any explanation. In countries where torture may still be frequent. And then there are other countries, like in some of the European countries, where uh, it's just understood that the way to get leniency is to come clean. It's sort of your duty to the state. And so it may not take so much pressure to, to, to get the confession. And in our country, for better or for worse, we don't have a confession system, except in juvenile cases. Uh, but, but confessions are, are really a priority, and, and police will invest in these lengthy interrogations, particularly in, in the murder cases, in cases where they... Uh, where there is no eyewitness, there aren't bulletproof forensics, and uh, the only way to, to, to crack it is to 
get the person themselves to crack. So, so Brandon, can I go back? So are you saying that in the United States, the average defendant is less likely to confess? And one explanation for that is cultural reasons. Whereas in Europe, for example, there's a greater tendency uh, on average. I'm not sure how you look at the averages here, but uh, uh, to confess and that those confessions are more reliable or equally reliable or. I don't know if we know how, how much more reliable they are. There may be some of the same, there may be many of the same problems in, in other countries. Uh, we don't I mean, have the, the hypothesis came from the fact that like if if you know for that all things being equal people in the United States are less likely to confess then you might think that the police have a greater incentive to be aggressive in order to extract confessions because they have to work harder and it's exactly those techniques that you point oh, to yeah. that are causing yeah. the problem and, right? and they feel weightier because they're less frequent right well, well and who knows they may feel weightier because they're less frequent or police may rely on other things here like you know bad lineups which are <laughs> as problematic or maybe more so. If anything, the evidence seems to suggest that eyewitness memory is far more unreliable. It, we, we don't know how many people who confess are innocent, but presumably a lot of people who confess can confess in detail because they know the details. Whereas we really do know quite a bit about eyewitness memory from experiments. And we know that, for example, even in the field, that about a third of the time, eyewitnesses pick out fillers in lineups, which are you know known errors. Hopefully that don't cause any harm, uh, although sometimes fillers get prosecuted, not too often. Oh, really? We just know that there's a high error rate and that it's it's just really difficult to remember the faces of strangers. Uh, and so... And, but we all think we're really good at it. But but I, I'm not sure that there's like this, you know, these perfect trade-offs or if police can't get the confession, then they'll do run a bunch of lineups. Um, but the thing is, you know, this goes back to your banality point, right, that... The, presumably the police are doing these things because they're convinced they've got the guy, right? And once they think right. they have the guy, they're, then they think their job is to build the case. And 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 so, you know, they're subject to the same kind of prejudices about this kind of evidence that we all are, right? That if they, if they have a confession, like nobody under any amount of pressure, because I'm not using thumb screws or the rack or anything like that, but just, you know, it may have taken a while, but like if it were five or six hours, I wouldn't, I wouldn't admit to a, a, a murder and rape. Uh, uh, so why is this person doing it? it? Must be because they're they're guilty, right? I mean, I already thought they were the guy. Now they've said they're the guy. They must be the guy, and and so the question is like, why are not the police? And this goes back to the discussion we've already had. So you know, maybe there's nothing else to say. But um, why are not the police the most interested in these somewhat counterintuitive notions about? confessions right and about false confessions and about the the um frailty of eyewitness testimony and is there any explanation beyond the one that i asked you about earlier which is you know the fact that they get basically they're rewarded for convictions immediately and and not really punished for exonerations which happen 10 years in the future uh, you know what I mean? It's like, so I, I can kind of understand how these things happen because police are just people like the rest of us subject to the same kinds of behavioral biases. What I don't really understand is why police departments are not one of the most invested institutions in understanding how psychology leads us awry in, in reaching conclusions, uh, if they're truly interested in, in getting bad guys, right? Because again, every time you convict an innocent person, you, there's a bad guy who's still out there. Um do you have any insight on that? I mean, is this the same question we asked a little bit ago? And is there an answer beyond just that the immediate reward delayed punishment theory? Well, that, that and then like what, what we were talking about before, there is no the police. Plenty of police department, the bigger police departments have been working on these issues a fair amount. And, and, and there's, but there's so many departments here. It's, you know, you, you have more re- reforms in some states like New Jersey, where there is more unified law enforcement. And if the state attorney general says we're doing lineups, this way, then all agencies have to follow that directive. Um, it's much easier to improve criminal justice in other countries where you have a hierarchical structure where the equivalent of the Department of Justice, you know, there's some Ministry of Justice that can say, from now on, uh, interrogations will be recorded. Yeah. yeah. Shall be done. Whereas here, you know, the Department of Justice last summer, you know, announced that all interrogations will be recorded. Um I, I get that. It's just that, you know, so Joe brought up Elizabeth Lost, Loftus earlier and like her studies were, I, I remember learning about these studies about uh, ba- faulty memories for eyewitnesses of things like license plates and, and how people could have extreme confidence in faces and in license plates, which turned out to be totally false back in uh, like 1991, 92 is when I read. And, the, and, and that was just an intro to psych class. So I, these studies I imagine were done in the eighties. Um, and 
but I don't remember a rush of police departments, even in the big cities, to say, "Oh my God, we've got, to, we've got to, we we have to uh, change completely the way that we're doing." Now, maybe I'm wrong. You know, as someone who's not a student of police departments, maybe I'm wrong about when these bigger departments started to pay attention to that. But no, what, it's, what it's, I, really, it's, yeah, it's really been the uh, the, and, uh, the social scientists would be the first to say this that no one really started paying attention to their research until you started seeing this wave of DNA exonerations. That was what brought home that the things that these people were saying about laboratory experiments actually had had a real world, world significance. Yeah. Oh, I see. I see. So you know, the DNA exoneration show you can't dismiss it. You as. can't dismiss it. I mean, and and everybody recognizes you've got the wrong person. Uh, and so you think that despite Loftus's studies, there was some kind of just even if we don't believe this uh, particular, even if she's right and these witnesses are unreliable. We have other means. We know we've got the right people, and and so we don't really need to change that. Is that what's going on? Well, and it actually, it actually did take more work beyond those pioneering studies that Loftus did to figure out. Well, uh, so we know that people can can have their memories contaminated. They can their memories can actually be altered. Uh, but what is it about lineups that that can either get that wrong or right? What are the particular lineup procedures that can better preserve someone's memory, and how do we how do we do that? And so that, that it took several decades more to actually to actually field test and lab test good lineup procedures. Now now there's a lot of consensus around these issues, and there's a big American Academy of Sciences report called "Identifying the Culprit" uh, that I helped work on that came out last fall, uh, describing what we do now. And and there are also some areas where more research needs to be done. There's there's quite a bit that we don't know, but there there are not, quite a few simple reforms that we do no work to improve lineups. It did, it did take some time beyond the, the 1970s, more recently, to do the studies to show that there really were these practical things that are easy and cheap for police to do. Yeah, and I get that. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm bugging all of our listeners and you guys and kind of harping on this. But what I'm trying to, what it still is troubling to me is, given those initial studies, even if there's more work to do to know how to do things better, why is it that, and maybe I'm wrong in the premise here that maybe they were, but why is it that police departments were not the some of the most uh, interested institutions in finding the answers to those questions, right? It, it, so, yeah, yeah there was a lot of work. Yeah, I, 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 I'm sort, I sort of find this to be a kind of a, a hilarious conversation to begin with because the, <laughs> uh, right, what, what's been shocking is that because, in part because of these horrible wrongful convictions uh, – there's been this an actual movement to reform criminal procedure to make things more accurate, right? You never had any particular interest in this type of research before before it became a national crisis, right? Uh, and so, you know, I don't, it's it's not a field where there's any particular incentive or funding to adopt best practices or to study techniques, right? It's not like a hospital that's going to get sued every time a, a patient gets injured or dies if something goes wrong, there's not normally accountability. And that's what we like in our country. We like having police that are uh, can make decisions on their own. They're independent. They're separate. They don't have great funding. They're not particularly professional. If they are professional, it's sort of voluntary professional associations. Same with crime labs and some of the other things I talk about in my research. Right, Traditionally, crime labs are part of law enforcement. They have huge backlogs. They don't have to have the standards or quality control that a, that a scientific laboratory would have. You know, we like to do to mass produce criminal justice and do it cheap. And we excuse it by saying we care about local discretion and local knowledge and localism and local government. Uh, but, you know, poor professionalism and poor quality control has been the name of the game for as long as anyone can remember that. What's, what's exciting is that some of that is starting to change and people are starting to realize the cost of, of, of working up cases so poorly. Yeah. And here's what I think. I think it goes back to Lisa's work. So you're back, say we're back in 1990 and all the social scientists understand the Elizabeth Loftus studies. Uh, police departments respond to, uh, you know, they're subject to all the biases that we are, and they think they're doing a good job. They're not typic- They're not super invested in understanding this literature or putting it into practice. Uh, and, but people who consume that literature or even people who read about it in the Times or wherever are saying, boy, I bet, you know, there probably are a lot of people who are wrongly convicted. You know, I bet there are some, right? But it doesn't spawn a kind of movement. It doesn't really reach uh, the level of, of, uh, of, of moving politicians. And then you get DNA exonerations. And instead of saying, I bet there are a lot of wrongly convicted people, you, you're saying that guy was wrongly convicted. 
this person had 30 years stolen from him, right? Uh, And it's been amazing to see the impact. When When you have some of these exonerees testify in front of legislatures, and you can actually see the dead man walking. Yeah. See Kirk Bloodsworth, you know, the first exoneree from death row, you know, he testifies in Maryland uh, and they abolished the death penalty, right? When you can actually meet someone who was on death row, who was actually innocent, that, that it's an amazing and powerful thing. Uh, you know, there's a, I haven't gone to the Innocence Network conference for a few years. It's incredible to meet these exonerees and to see the inspiring things that they, that some of them are doing. And, and it's like, it's like Joe's question. You see that person in front of you and you say, you know what, if some random person uh, in societies, a criminal, put this person in a cell and treated them like we did for 30 years uh, without justification, what would the punishment be, right? And and you realize that that's the cost, right? It, as, as strongly as you would try to disincentivize and to punish someone who took 30 years of someone's life by kidnapping them and putting them into a cell, that should be the price you're willing to pay to avoid having that happen uh, officially, right? And and I, it's, I but I we just, don't seem to act that way. Well, maybe at a certain level. Well, that's that's what or I'm wondering. Is we if, haven't been acting yeah, that way. If the exonerations by putting faces on these things, it's kind of you know what the, the same phenomenon as the fact that we're willing to spend huge amounts of money to save a particular girl who's fallen down a well, right? But we're not willing to spend money to save three hundred thousand lives in the abstract. To make it more depressing, what I've been seeing as I've been updating the data that I reported in Convicting the Innocent is that, like you'd expect, we we have fewer and fewer DNA exonerations. More and more of the old cases are being tested, and there are fewer and fewer old cases from the time before DNA testing was available. The, the More of the recent DNA exonerations are sort of hard-fought old cases where the person was tried multiple times, most of them involving confessions. The, the new cases are, are pretty confession-dominated. Cases where even despite DNA tests that came along clearing the person, prosecutors just couldn't get their heads around the fact that the guy confessed. And a handful of cases where the DNA test itself was botched or the DNA results were hidden from the defense. So you'll still see some of those where there was DNA testing done to clear someone, but the defense lawyer somehow never told of that, or there was a DNA mistake in the lab that was later caught. But you will see fewer and fewer of these clear DNA exonerations since DNA testing is routine before trial. So, you know, the window is closing. And you know, a decade from now, it will be many fewer cases involving DNA exonerations. Now, there may be some more exonerations from newer technologies, people who can show through GPS and that you know, they were with their phone and their phone was not at the crime scene and other technology, video technology may help more people to show that they couldn't have been where, where police said they were. Uh, but that said, this this unique window into wrongful convictions, the, the DNA exoneration window, really is closing and it's closing faster now. And so we'll have, we'll have fewer of these compelling cases and compelling people to tell us their story about what went wrong. Hey, Brandon, before you before you go, and I know you got to go, can you give us your quick take on the Kaczynski piece, whether it breaks new ground and, and whether... Well, it, always break, yeah. it always breaks new ground to have a judge tell us um, as, tell us what we've been writing as scholars. And, you know, uh, you know he, he, it, it's, it's important to have a, ju- a judge who's been known as a conservative judge, um, who has, has not exactly been active in carefully reviewing the evidence and the large quantity of death row habeas cases that's come up to the Ninth Circuit over the years to finally say, look, enough is enough. I've seen too much. Um, and so it's, it, do, it does mean something when judges speak out. It's important when judges speak out. And it's some, even if what the judge does is cite to research that's been going on for, for a long time, like we're not expecting judges to do original research into eyewitness memory or the causes of wrongful convictions. What's really important is when a judge reads that research and, and is moved by it. And when that research jibes with the experience that a judge has, which is unique to judges, which is that they see the patterns across so many cases that they experience over the years. And it hits them that, wait a minute, you know, how many cases have I denied habeas to where there were lineups just like some of these lineups that have gone wrong or where there were confessions just like some of these false confessions that have gone wrong? Or when I, how many Brady claims do I deny relief on because I, they can't get past Ed or they can't show prejudice. Um, you know, what kind of patterns are there? So I think it's it's incredibly important when a judge does that. So, so if you could change one thing, 
would it be repeal the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, the EDPA, or would it be an administrative, like, innocence review panel? Or I I know it would be all of those things, but, like, what's the single most important thing? Well, if the goal is to investigate potential wrongful convictions and correct them after the fact, then setting up something like uh, the Criminal Case Review Commission that they have in the UK, an administrative panel, one that has real resources, that that's better than having um, appellate or post-conviction judges do it because they, they can't investigate cases. Mm. And the problem is that on habeas, people don't have a right to a lawyer. They can't necessarily investigate what evidence might be out there of their innocence. And so in the UK, they have, and in North Carolina, but the North Carolina one doesn't can't handle too many cases in any given time. In the UK, they handle hundreds and hundreds of cases, and they can actually investigate the ones that they think have merit. In the U.S., it's outsourced. We have, you know, volunteer lawyers. We have innocence clinics at law schools that can investigate a small number of cases every year, but they can't take too many cases. Yeah, an excellent one at your law school that was featured in Serial, too, I think. We have a great innocence clinic, uh, and uh, and everyone should donate money to these clinics. They're the only way that people can really get innocence claims seriously investigated in this country, and they're doing it pro bono. Uh, now, if you want to prevent wrongful convictions in the first instance, and, you know, it can be. It's usually too late by the time someone is trying to appeal or bring habeas, and and so that means doing the hard work of convincing local officials that it's really, really important to fix the way you do lineups, and it's really, really important to videotape interrogations, and it's really important for forensic labs to have careful scientific standards. But that's that 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 takes a change in, in, in politics. Yeah, we're getting there, though. We're getting there. Listen, thank you so much, Brandon, for for joining us. This has been really fascinating. Oh, it's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me.